Boy, that last little announcement that we had about Baja, my son and I were scheduled to go last year, and a day before that trip going down south, uh, my son got pneumonia, so I ended up uh, still away from home, but the entire time in the hospital last year. So hopefully this next time this year, uh, he or I won't get pneumonia. We're signed up. Mark, thanks for leading. I'm so excited to go down on that, uh, on that amazing weekend as we make an impact. And we know that not everybody can make it down there, and we hope that if you're in town, if you're on campus, you notice it was the same date for the All Shall Be Well conference. It's because, you know, our church is uh, large enough that if we only offered one thing uh, at one time, even if it's for uh, different demographics, we would never accomplish all the things that God wants to do in and through us. And so with the, the many people who call Beller our church home, uh, we hope that you would take the next step in the community and to experience the life that God calls us to here at Bel Air. Now, if you're new, which we have new people every week, I want to say welcome. Many people join us online as well. In a moment, we're going to open up our Bibles, but just to let you know, we're in a sermon series uh, called Mountain and Sanctuary, and we are going into the book of Exodus. It's the second book in Scripture, and this book is, you know, it's very easy to look at the nation of Israel back then and look back then and say, gosh, those Israelites, I mean, come on. You guys are ridiculous. You grumble, you complain, you forget, you do all these things. Oy vey, you know, like you can get you know, so worked up over these people. Like, what's your deal? And it's so easy to point the finger and miss the four fingers pointed back at you. You know, I've heard it said before that it's easy to read Scripture and to see the people in Scripture almost kind of like you're going into a room and you look across the room and you see a portrait across the room on the wall and you say, wow, that person's ugly. You know, the portrait on the wall. And you can kind of like breeze through Scripture or you can uh, breeze through the room and leave it at that. But in actual fact, if you sit long enough in God's Word, if you stayed long enough in that room and you got closer to that portrait, all of a sudden you would quickly realize that it's not a portrait, it's actually a mirror. And the sort of thing that you see is actually yourself. And I don't know if you're going to resonate with this, but I got to tell you, in preparing for this, I feel like this was a great grand mirror reflecting my brokenness, my grumbling, my impatience, my forgetfulness. And in a moment as we open up Exodus, I also want you to grab a postcard. A postcard was hopefully given to you in your bulletin. Again, in this sermon series, we've been blessed by a phenomenal artist from Portland, Oregon, named Scott Erickson on social media. He's known as Scott the Painter. Every week, we're going to have a postcard with his artwork on it. You'll notice on the back, literally, it is a postcard. You could uh, mail this to somebody. But here's my hope, here's my prayer, is that you would take this as an opportunity, a challenge, to have one Christ-centered conversation with somebody in your life and use this postcard as a prompt, as a catalyst. There's questions on the back for you to reflect on, for you to perhaps ask somebody else in your life. Maybe it's a family member, a roommate, a coworker, a neighbor. Uh, maybe you literally mail it to somebody or over a meal. You pull it out of your bag, your purse, and you say, hey, you know, I've got a question that I've been wrestling with. I'd love to ask you. So leave this out, leave scripture out, and you'll notice if you open this up, that on the main idea, the main theme, which we'll get to in a moment, simply says this, that our hearts and God's glory are revealed in the wilderness. Our hearts and God's glory are revealed in the wilderness. So with that theme in mind, why don't we open up Exodus 
And as we go to Exodus chapter 16, if you didn't bring a Bible, no problem. It's that red book in front of you in the pews. Or if you're in a front row of any of our sections, there's a little cubby right behind your leg. And that red book that's down there is our pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take it with you. We'd rather you have it in your life and open speaking truth and love and power in your life. We can replace it as quickly as you take it. And let me read for us. It's on page 55 in your pew Bible. For those, the many of you who join online, I'm going to read Exodus 16, 1 through 7. And then I'm going to flip forward to Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And what a joy it is to be with you, some of uh, you. I look back and I see friends of mine from decades ago visiting so great. You know who you are right over there. Exodus 16, 1 through 7. This is God's word for us. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim. And Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And now Exodus 17, verse 1. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages. As the Lord commanded, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. Amen. All right, let's leave those Bibles open. Leave those postcards open. As I said before, let's let... This not just be a portrait across the room, but let's let this be a mirror because their story is our story. And there's something happens to the nation of Israel in the physical wilderness 
that is also true for us when we enter not only a physical wilderness, but a spiritual wilderness, a relational wilderness, a financial wilderness, a psychological wilderness. Those seasons in our life that aren't the mountaintop experiences, the seasons of our life that aren't easy, that are grand, that aren't uh, where we're flush with energy or joy or, or relational capital. And there's something about the wilderness that not only reveals our hearts, but it also reveals God's glory. You know, it's fascinating in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 where it talks about God creating all things. There's not one mention of God creating the wilderness. There's not one mention of God creating the desert. Uh, The wilderness, read all of Scripture, is a metaphor of life apart from God, a a life that is uh, filled with sin. Even this Scripture passage refers to it as a desert called sin. And there's three things that I want to share with you that I see here about how our hearts and their hearts uh, kind of come to the surface. And the first one is this. So if you're taking notes, uh, our hearts, the first thing is that it reveals that our hearts quickly forget. Take a look at this. Exodus 16, verse 3, it says, The Israelites said to them, to Moses and Aaron, the leaders, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. Now let's pause right there. There is nowhere in the Exodus story where they're sitting by flesh pots and having their fill of bread. And here they are in the wilderness, and they're saying, we had it so good back there. I mean, I don't even see it as that good back there. Flesh pots, come on. You know, I mean, fill of bread, yeah. But, but even then, all of a sudden, they've been removed from their circumstances, from this fertile crescent land where there's resources aplenty, but in actual fact, they were enslaved in Egypt. They were in bondage. And the Pharaoh not only removed more resources for them to do their work, he actually began to remove some of their food. And so now they are in the wilderness. They look around. They don't see food. They don't see drink. They don't see the same resources that abounded in Egypt. And they so quickly forget, and they say, ah, we had it so good in Egypt. This is the language of addiction. Here's the remarkable truth. They, in a matter of days, have been removed from slavery, removed from bondage. And yet it was going to take 40 years to remove the slavery and bondage from their hearts. You see, the route of which God removed the bondage, removed the idols, removed their addiction, removed their uh, misremembering, wasn't by going just to the promised land. It was through the wilderness. You see, it's actually the wilderness experiences of life, which, by the way, I, maybe you, we want to avoid, don't we? I mean, how many of us run towards the stock market in December and say, man, that was great? I mean, how many of us leave the doctor's office when we get diagnosed with something terminal and we say, that's what I was hoping for? I mean, how many of you, after a divorce, after the loss of a loved one, after uh, somebody betraying you, you say, yes, that was my 2019 resolution. Nobody does. And yet it's the wilderness where not only our hearts are revealed, but we'll quickly see where God's glory is revealed as well. You see, the nation of Israel, they, they, they so quickly forget 
And we so quickly forget. When things go south, we forget not only how God was there for us in the good times, but we also forget how God was with us and provided for us even in the bad. You know, I think about many years ago where my wife and I struggled with infertility. You could say that that was a wilderness experience. The real miracle of that wasn't the fact that ultimately Judah was born, our son, and then Barrett later was born. The real miracle, in fact, was that in the midst of that infertility, in the midst of the wilderness, my wife and I came to a place where we dramatically and utterly trusted God that God was enough. That the idol of having a child and the idol, frankly, of being a parent to satisfy us, to give us peace, to give us meaning, to have joy... We finally laid that down at the feet of Jesus and said, you know what? We want you, and whatever you want for us is enough. That was the miracle. And that's how God met us in the midst of that wilderness experience. The problem is, is I get out of that wilderness, and now I'm in a new wilderness where, oh, my gosh, they keep getting sick, and it's hard, and it's awful, and I forget that God is faithful in the midst of it. He will sustain us. He will provide for us. There's something that happens when we enter into the wilderness where we forget and it feels like even though God was faithful yesterday, it feels like it's been a decade ago when he was faithful. You see, he has rescued them from, the, from Egypt. He's parted the Red Sea. He's provided water. He's provided food. And they show up and they say, where's God been? He's not here. How do you respond when you enter those wilderness experiences? Some of you are in the midst of them right now. What is bubbling to the surface that comes out of your heart? Likely, if you're human, based upon your own strength, apart from God and the Holy Spirit through you, you, you likely forget. But there's more here. In fact, what happens is they begin to blame everybody else for all the problems. We see here in Genesis, or Exodus 16 and Exodus 17, the nation of Israel is blaming Moses and blaming Aaron. Moses is blaming the people, and they just kind of are washing their hands with one another. And that's the story of all of Scripture. You go all the way back to Genesis 3, when the first humans uh, chose their way rather than God's way. God shows up to uh, the man and says, what have you done? He says, the woman, she made me do it. And then God goes to the woman and says, the serpent made me do it. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I know myself well enough that when there are mistakes made, I point the finger. But I often point the finger not just to people. I point the finger at circumstances, systems, things. Human nature is when we get into wilderness moments, we blame everyone else. When we're on the top of the mountain, we say, look at what I did. In the hard moments, it's all everybody else's fault. And when there's success, well, thank you very much. I'll take a bow. It's this broken thing that we do as humans. When we enter the wilderness, not only do we forget, but we blame others. And third, we get dramatically self-absorbed and self-focused. Here's what's fascinating. God is giving uh, the nation of Israel this, this daily bread, this manna from heaven on a daily basis. There's very clear instruction that you're supposed to gather and you're supposed to have and only keep enough for a day's worth of food. If you take more, if you hoard more, it's going to spoil. It's going to get wasted. And so some people, they, in a land of scarcity, believe that the only way to survive 
is by being self-focused. The only way to survive is to look out for number one. The only way to survive isn't to care about the community, but to say, you know, I've got I've to get the getting when the getting is good, and I've got to provide for myself. And what happens is the more people are self-absorbed, the more the food spoils. Now, here's what's fascinating. You know, I've been a follower of Christ for almost 20 years, senior pastor, and I forget a lot of Scripture. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I, I, I come back to these passages, and I'm like, oh, oh, I forgot that. Because I came back to this, and I'm studying, and I completely missed. Take a look. At the end of Exodus 16, in Exodus 16, 39, you know, I, what I remembered was God gave them manna for like a month until they moved on. Oh, no. Exodus 16, 35, forgive me. 35. Right? Yeah, there's no 39 in the Bible, right? 35. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years. For 40 years. For 40 years. God is providing for them this, this daily bread. And later on in Scripture, it says, still, for 40 years, they didn't get it. They didn't realize to just take the daily amount and people still hoarded more. You see, the journey should have only lasted less than two weeks. I believe in numbers it says it should have lasted 13 days. Uh, a couple came to me and said, you know, over the break, we went to Israel. Israel is so small. How could they wander for 40 years? <laughs> I mean, we did it. Until, how is that possible, right? <laughs> the truth is, is their journey wasn't just a physical journey. It was a spiritual journey. And the journey from Egypt, from bondage to freedom in the promised land wasn't just a physical journey. Again, it was a spiritual journey. And yes, physically they got out of bondage, but they had to go through the wilderness for the bondage to get out of them. And you and I, we avoid the wilderness experiences of our life, and God says, oh no, that's the road through which all the things that you think you need will get stripped away, and all that's left is God. And you'll realize that the only thing you need is the only thing you have, and that's God. But it's in the mountaintop experiences. It's when the economy is good. It's when relationships are fine, when you get to go on vacation. When things are great, all of a sudden the things that you think you need get clouded by all the things you have. And the only thing that you actually need in God gets put in the back seat. And God says, oh, you're still so in bondage. The road to transformation is through the wilderness. And if you're in the midst of it, know that that's where God says, my glory will be revealed. It's true that God's glory is also revealed on the top of Mount Sinai, but it's not just the mountaintop experiences. It's also in the wilderness. So our hearts are revealed in the wilderness to be ones that forget. We blame others. We get self-absorbed. Maybe some of you feel like, oh, that's the mirror of my life. Maybe like I felt like this is the mirror of my life. But let's take a look how we see God and God's glory also being revealed. Because here's the truth. When you look in that mirror, you're going to quickly see that God is right there with you. That the broken, ugly, distorted thing that is you, that is me, isn't the fullness of the whole picture. Let's take a look. Open those Bibles back up. You know what's so fascinating about Exodus uh, 16 and 17 is the nation of Israel, for example, uh, 
grumbles and, and, and complains. And what does God do? He doesn't come down and say, you know, my patience has run out. I'm going to move on to another people group. He doesn't do that. Uh, he doesn't rain fire from heaven. He says, I heard your grumbling. And in a sense, he says, I'm going to remember. While you forget, God says, I'm going to remember my promise that I made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to my people. That even in the wilderness experiences of life, even if it feels like everything's been taken away from you, financially, emotionally, psychologically, uh, relationally, health-wise, God says, I still remember you. I am true to my word, and my word is that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always provide for you. As Romans 8 says, that I'm going to work together for good, all things, even bad things, according to God's purposes, because he's called you. You see, even in the midst of the wilderness, God remembers. But even beyond that, we see that God's glory is revealed through God's grace. It's an absolute gift that God rains manna from heaven on a daily basis for 40 years straight. Absolutely remarkable. One of the things that I had overlooked in my study of this prior to this, and I really just kind of popped out like in Technicolor this week, was this one little section. You can read it later towards the end of Exodus 16. He says to the nation of Israel, I want you to go out, I want you to collect, and I want you to bring it back, and I want you to measure out equal amounts from everybody in your household. And then it goes on to say, some people gathered less and some people gathered more. And what he's saying is, I want you to individually go out and I want you to gather it all and I want you to divide it up and share it among the entire community. You think about a group this large. Some people, infants. Some people, paralyzed. They did not have the ability to go out themselves to gather the manna. You see, there was work that was involved to receive this gift different than when God just carried them out of Egypt. He says, now, I'm giving you grace, I'm giving you a gift, but it's going to take the whole community for you to experience the gift of the grace. And it was distributed among all the people. And we're in a season right now, you've got to know that if you come here, and on one hand, it's great that we're large enough that you would come on a Sunday, you can remain anonymous. And on one hand, that's okay, but just for a season. Because you were created for community. You were created for people knowing your needs and you knowing theirs and that you would come and you would ask for prayer and that you would pray for others, that you would come to serve and be served, that you would come to give your gifts and your skills and your personality and that you would receive that from others because the truth is that we were created for each other. And we live in such a world where we're so focused on the individual and God says, the grace that I give is, yes, for individuals, but I want it to be experienced in community. Life groups are starting back up in Lent, and we're looking for more life group leaders. I believe Rebecca's going to be available, right? You like how I weave that together? I mean, that was pretty good, right? You're going to be available on the Narthex right afterwards if you want to serve as a life group leader, open up your home, your apartment, uh, or maybe even meet at a restaurant. Talk with Rebecca afterwards. We were created for community. Take a look at another thing, though. I want you to see Exodus 17. So here is grace given in the wilderness in the most unlikely of places. Take a look at Exodus 17. 
So, you know, in Exodus 16, they're hungry, God provides food. Exodus 17, they're thirsty, God provides water. Verse 6, I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it. Any Girl Scouts here? Put your hands up. Any, any, any Boy Scouts here? Now, I don't know about you, but I was told that if you're looking for water, you, go, you, you, you don't go to the top of a rock. <laughs> I mean, if you're in the desert, you're in the wilderness, water does not flow from the top of a rock, the hardest thing on the planet. No. And yet it's such a reminder that God's grace comes from the unlikeliest of places, that God's grace comes from the hardest of places. That God's grace comes from a place where we absolutely least expect it. Hold that thought for a moment because there's more than just meets the eye and the rock there. I want to say something about God's glory being revealed by the demonstration of God's justice. Open those Bibles up. Take a look at Exodus 17. Something fascinating here. Again, I miss this. There's, uh, scripture is so rich, and the more we come back to it, the more treasure is unearthed. And in this past couple of weeks as I was preparing for this, there was something that I never noticed before, and it's this. In verse 4, Moses cries out to the Lord. So this is Exodus 17, 4. Moses cries out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now let's pause there. You know, I would just breeze through this. I would rush through this. I never really caught what's going on. But when I went back to some commentaries, so some scholars that have talked about this section of Scripture, what they're saying is that Moses isn't just using this phrase, they're about to stone me like they're just angry at me. He's literally saying, they actually want to kill me through that form of capital punishment in that time by stoning me. And so the commentators are saying, what's about to happen is the whole of the nation of Israel is about to put Moses on trial. Literally, not figuratively, not symbolically, they're literally at the place where they've forgotten that they're blaming others. They're self, so self-focused that they're saying, Moses is responsible for the deaths that are about to occur in the wilderness. Therefore, we're about to put him to trial, and the penalty is death, and we're going to stone him. We want justice for the wrong that we are experiencing. And as humans, it's very natural when we as people or as families or as people groups or as a nation, we want justice. And that actually flows from being created in the image of God. Well, how does God deal with the justice here? Look what he does. Open those Bibles back up. And Exodus 17 says this. Go on ahead of the people and take some of your elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, let's pause right there. Now, if you've been with us for the fall, or if you can picture Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, uh, this rod, this staff, was the same rod uh, that was used to be thrown down in front of Pharaoh and miraculously it turned into a snake. It was the same rod, it was the same staff that when Moses touched the Nile River, it turned into blood. Uh, in that point in human history, these, these staffs, these massive rods, were actually used as a symbolic picture of justice and authority. And in fact, back then in the ancient world, leaders would have these things 
And it would be a demonstration of their power, of their role as judge. So here, imagine this. Hang with me here. The whole of the nation of Israel is about to put Moses on trial. And Moses is blaming the people. And God says to Moses, I want you to take this rod of justice and I want you to go out not as the one accused, but as judge. Hang with me here. And so imagine this. Okay, think about this. Moses likely in that moment is thinking, you want me to judge the people? Oh, I'll judge them. I mean, he's already blaming them. It's not what God does. Take a look. Exodus 17. Go on, not to the people. He says, go on ahead of the people. You're blaming the people. Don't judge them. Go past them. Go on ahead of them and take the elders with you. Verse 6. I will be standing there in front of you. This is the only place in the entirety of the Old Testament where God uses this language. I, God, will be standing there in front of you. Every other place, it is you standing in front of God. Only place in all of Scripture where it says, I, God, will stand in front of you. What's, what's going on here? You see, in the ancient world, if somebody went to see the queen, you would never say the queen stands before you as the subject. If you went to see the king, you would never say the king stands before you. You would say that you get to stand in front of the king. This phrase is used for an inferior to stand in front of a superior. For somebody who is less than to stand in front of somebody who is greater than. And in that moment, what God is saying is that, Moses, you are not on trial. The nation of Israel isn't on trial. In actual fact, I'm on trial, God says. Oh, and that reveals our hearts, doesn't it? Because at the end of the day, we point the finger at others, but in the heart of our hearts and the depth of our souls, I believe that we, we put God on trial. And what does God do? He says, I'll go on trial. You take your judgment rod, and I will stand in front of you. Then what happens? I'm going to stand on the rock at Horeb, and I want you to strike the rock. I want you to use your justice. I want you to use your power. I want you to use your might, and I want you to use your authority, and I want you to strike the rock. And out of that, life will come. Out of that, your thirst will be quenched. Now, if you just left at that, you'd be like, that's some weird stuff. But you don't have to leave it at that. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. Oh, I get the chills just reading this. 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 3. Shout it out when you get to the page. 931. Welcome back, Ron. <laughs> Traveling for a bit. You're back. To be quick on the draw with that. 931. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3. This is referring to the nation of Israel back then. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, hold up, hold up, hold up. You know what it says in John 7? Jesus says, you know, back then God gave them, uh, you know, manna from heaven. And they still went hungry. But God's going to give you, followers of Christ, my disciples, Jesus says, a bread that will cause you to never hunger again. And that bread is, Jesus says, is me. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm the manna from heaven. When all gets stripped away, I'm what you need. And in the same way, he says, whoever comes to me will no longer thirst again. Streams of living water will flow through them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the rock is the rock. Not just a physical rock, the rock is Christ. Man, when you step back and when you see all this together, you know what God is saying here? In those wilderness experiences, gosh, when you forget, when you blame others, when you get self-absorbed, my glory is revealed. And how do I reveal it? By remembering you, by extending grace to you, and by being the just one who also justifies you. Men's breakfast, we talked about this yesterday. Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He never did sin, but he became sin for us. The rock of Christ went to the cross perfect, holy, blameless, without sin, without wrongdoing. And what do we do? With our power, with our might, with our judgment, we struck him. What does he cry from the cross? They struck the rock in the desert, life came forth. We struck Christ on the cross, eternal life came forth. How remarkable is the foreshadowing of the gospel in the wilderness? It's dripping with God's love for you. Christ longs to be the thing that satisfies you. When you find yourself in the wilderness, my prayer for you, two practical things. When you find yourself lost, confused, not knowing up from down, here's my prayer for you. That you would eat and drink. But not just eat and drink. Things that will make you go hungry. That you'll feed on the word of God. You see, later on in Scripture, it refers to the bread, the manna, is God's word. Jesus even says in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. It says that we chew on God's word, that when we find ourselves in those wilderness experiences, that we would open up the banquet of God's feast, of God's truth, and God's life, and that we would feed on this. That's how you stop forgetting. That's how you stop blaming others. That's how you stop being so self-absorbed when you chew on the truth of God's word for you on a daily basis, when you don't just get through scripture, but you allow it to get through you, to allow it to nourish you, to satisfy you, to transform you. And in addition to that, you don't just eat God's word. You drink in the fullness of who Christ is in your life. You allow his life poured out for you to, to satisfy you to quench your thirst for love, for peace, for joy, for power, that he would be the one that satisfies all of your needs. And you get that in the wilderness. 
My hope, if you're in the wilderness now or you find yourself in the wilderness later this year, that you would say, God's doing something. May my heart be revealed so that it would be transformed, but also would God's glory be revealed so that I could become more like Christ, that I could be part of a community that isn't terrified when wilderness experiences happen, that I'd be the type of follower of Jesus when somebody comes to me and says, I just got diagnosed with cancer, that we wouldn't say, oh, I don't want to deal with that. It's going to ruin my lunch date. They would say, you know what? I'm going to enter into this journey with you. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to take you to chemo. How can I serve you? That we would be people that get comfortable in the uncomfortable experiences of the wilderness. You see, the more that we can go through pain, the more that we can go through suffering with one another, the more God's going to transform us and each other through it. That's what I long for. And boy, this has been a mirror for me this week, and I hope it is to you. Let's pray. Loving God, as we respond in worship... May it be from a deeper, richer place, knowing that there's so much more going on than the circumstances around us. God, would we see some of these eternal truths that echo not only in their lives thousands of years ago, but in our lives today. May we give, not just out of the abundance of what we have, but God, even in what seems to be the scarcity of our lives, because God, you are enough. And you take what little we have and you multiply it for your kingdom purposes. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for being the bread of life, for being the rock that was struck, through which streams of living water flow through you and also through us. Jesus, we thank you that you were the one who made it possible for us to have a right relationship with you, God. May we put our faith and trust in you, some again and again, and others for the first time today. Jesus, we choose you. It's in your name we pray and we say together, amen. amen.